So let's turn in our Bibles uh, tonight to the book of Exodus, chapter 9. Exodus, chapter 9, if you turn there in your Bibles tonight, we have been uh, going through the book of Exodus, and we find ourselves in the midst of the ten plagues that we read of, uh, beginning uh, really the conversation between Moses and Pharaoh began in Exodus, chapter 5, and has gone on since then, but We are not only in the midst of the plague, we are literally in the midst of the plague because now we find ourselves at plague number five. Now, if you know uh, God's word, you know that there are ten plagues. And so the fifth plague is where we find ourselves here in Exodus chapter 9. And so we're going to begin in just a moment reading in verse 1. But before we read, let me remind you again why God sent those plagues. And these are statements that are taken right from God's word. The first reason that God sent the plagues is that he wanted to manifest his power in a public fashion. As we've been uh, familiar now with uh, the, the religious system in Egypt is that it's a pagan system. They worship many gods. And to them, whether it is the god of the Nile, the god of the sun, the god of fertility, all blessings that they receive, they attribute to some god. And it is interesting to note here that God is publicly manifesting His power. And if you notice here, as we've looked at the first few plagues, that the magicians in Egypt tried to duplicate the miracles, and they were able in some measure to do the first two. And then the third one, you remember they said, this is the finger of God. It is interesting also to note that they tried to duplicate the plagues, but they never tried to abate the plagues or to nullify the plagues because they could not. And so God is manifesting His mighty power. We also know that God sent the plagues to display His wrath against Pharaoh and uh, His cruel treatment of the children of Israel. We also know that God sent the plagues to exercise judgment upon the gods of the Egyptians and to demonstrate that He was greater than all gods. And fourth, He... Uh, send the plagues to stand as a warning to all other nations. If we continue reading beyond the book of Exodus, and we find the children of Israel going from nation to nation, you find that the nations have heard of what God did in Egypt. And it's going to stand as a warning to many of them throughout the world. And then lastly, we know that God sent the plague also to test the children of Israel. Now, why would God use, use uh, the plagues to test the children of Israel? What is evident as we go back and read throughout the Bible that uh, some of the idolatry, uh, some of the pagan worship system had infiltrated the children of Israel where many of them were beginning to believe and worship the gods of the Egyptians. Now, we know that and we see that clearly later in Exodus chapter 32 and 33 when Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai and while he's gone, they... Uh, make a golden calf. Well, where did they get that idea? From Egypt. Now, as we've looked at the plagues, we've grouped the plagues into three sections. Well, if you leave out the last plague, you can think about uh, the first three plagues in the first section, then plague four through six in the second section, and then plague seven through nine in the third section. And the reason why we break them up is because there's a pattern in each one of those sections. For example, in each case, in plagues 1, 4, and 7, Moses was instructed to meet Pharaoh during the morning worship of the Pharaoh. 
the Pharaoh would typically go in the morning by the Nile and offer some sacrifice or some form of worship to one of the false gods of the Egyptians. And it is interesting that in the first plague of each one of those sections, God sends Moses early in the morning by the river where Pharaoh is worshiping a false god. The second plague in each section, we find that Moses was instructed then to go to Pharaoh's court and to give him a warning as to what was to come if he refused to let the people go. And in the same way, in all three sections, on the third plague, the sixth plague, and the ninth plague, the plague comes without warning. And so there's three sections that happen in that same order every time. And and obviously, the tenth plague is the death of the firstborn, which stands alone. But thus far, the plagues, before we begin our reading, the plagues have been uncomfortable and at times painful. And there is something here as we come to plague number five that is unique about this fifth plague. This plague is going to affect the personal property, or we could say the personal wealth of the Egyptians. The livestock at that time was precious to the Egyptians. The cattle in particular were held as a sacred animal in Egypt. And you find that different types of livestock are going to be affected by this plague, which is going to be a disease that will prove itself to be fatal to the the horses and the camels and the oxen and the sheep. Now let's begin reading now in chapter 9 of Exodus in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 7. The word of God says, Then the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, and tell him, Thus saith the Lord, God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if thou refuse to let them go, and wilt hold them still, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle, which is in the field, upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, and upon the sheep. There shall be a very grievous moraine. And the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt, and there shall nothing die of all that is the children's of Israel. And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. And the Lord did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died, but the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead. That's quite amazing. So after Pharaoh finds that out, the Bible says, And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. As we come here to the fifth plagues, I've mentioned there's an order in those plagues. The plagues, I believe, are becoming uh, more severe as we continue to read them. We begin here in our passage in Exodus chapter 9, verse 1. We find here that this is uh, another statement from Moses that comes to Pharaoh, and he repeats this statement that has been repeated time and time again. The first time is found in chapter 5, verse 1, then chapter 7, verse 16, chapter 8, verse 1, and then chapter 8 and verse 20. But every time, Moses has the same message, and the message really is twofold. Uh, If you think about uh, the general message is, let the people go, But then there are reasons why the people are to be let go. And God and Moses gives those two reasons. Notice with me Exodus 9 verse 1. Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. 
So notice here, there are two reasons that are given. Now, the first one may not be so evident, yet it is subtle, but I believe it is the reason nonetheless. The first reason is that the Hebrews did not belong to Pharaoh. Do you notice here the expression, the Bible says, the Lord says, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go. You see, the, the, the Hebrews were not the people of Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh, who we know thought of himself as a god, uh, believed that the Hebrews belonged to him, and he would not let the people go. And so this message is persistent over and over again, where the message is the same to Pharaoh. These are God's people, and you should let my people go. The second reason is given at the end of verse 1. Not only let my people go that they may, notice, serve me. And so reason number two is that uh, God wants his people to serve him. Now, I think this is very important here because we think about the whole narrative of the Old Testament, particularly the narrative of the book of Exodus, and we see the Exodus, the title of the book Exodus is the Exodus of the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage going into the promised land. Now, there will be the wilderness wanderings for a time, but the point is God is redeeming His people out of bondage. Hence, we have the word redeemed. Well, as believers, we are familiar with the word redeemed because if we are born again by the Spirit of God, if we are the children of God, we also have been redeemed from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. But as we think about redemption here, uh, how God is going to bring the children out of Egyptian bondage, notice He brings them out of Egyptian bondage unto something. So we're talking here about their freedom, but it is important to know here that the freedom of the Hebrews is connected to a specific purpose. Note the words, that they may serve me. So here's what we learn from the redemption of the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, that redemption is unto service. Redemption is unto service. Now, uh, we are familiar with Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. The Bible says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then the Bible says, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So we know that we are not saved by works, but we are saved unto good works. And here the children of Israel, as we think about the Egyptian bondage, we're thinking, wow, the Hebrews are going to enjoy freedom, but freedom to do what? When we think about freedom, we also have to think about a word that we may not necessarily like to think about, but that's the word responsibility. And here with this freedom, with this redemption, would come also a responsibility for the children of Israel, and that would be to serve God. The question can be asked, do we pray in our own lives for ourselves to be healthy so that we might serve God? Or do we pray to be healthy because we want to pursue carnal pleasures? Uh, you see, sometimes we want uh, freedom and we want uh, health and we want prosperity, but the question is, to do what? Freedom to do what? Prosperity to do what? What is the end goal? And here, the redemption, the purpose of the redemption is so that God's people would serve Him. 
Remember the first time they came to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5, they said, let the people go so that we may offer sacrifice unto the Lord in the wilderness, so that we may offer a feast unto the Lord. And the children of Israel told Pharaoh, they said, if you don't let us go, God is going to judge us. And so they saw themselves as responsible to serve the Lord. You see, when we think about um, here um, what's been repeated every time, sometimes we may overlook and we may think, well, just let the people go, just let the people go. But we have to think, let the people go into what? So that they can serve God. And by the way, the same can be applied to us as being redeemed from sin, that God saves us so that we might serve Him and live for Him and be faithful to Him. We are not saved by good works, but salvation does produce good works. So we see here that in the first one we see two reasons given, but then we move over to verse 2 and the Bible says, For if thou refuse to let them go and wilt hold them still, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle which is in the field, upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, and upon the sheep, there shall be a very grievous moraine. So here as we uh, continue in our passage here, these things here don't mean much to us today. Now we, we might think here, well so far, right, the water's been uh, turned to blood, there's frogs everywhere, the dust was lice upon man, then there were swarms of flies, and if we study Psalms, the Bible says that they devoured men and beasts, and so we've seen that this has been pretty severe, and so we might think here, oh, the death of the livestock, and we might not think that this is a big deal, and so these things here don't mean much to us today, but they meant to the Egyptians of that day nearly everything. Now, when we think, uh, any farmers this evening... Any farmers, you own livestock? No? Okay. So that's not much of us here. Now, I've, I've known uh, a few farmers, and well, it was not uh, farmers necessarily of livestock. Uh, some of them I know uh, in, in Ohio have uh, worked on a farm there. Uh, and when, so it was cows or chickens, so different types of livestock. And so we, we, we can't really relate to that because we think, I said, well, what's the big deal about the livestock dying? But to the Egyptians, and in that day, and in that economy, it meant really everything. There's really here a twofold impact that this would have on the Egyptians. The first type of impact it would have is this will impact the material wealth of Egypt. Now, if you would study history and maybe read after a few historians, when they think about the time of Moses, even the time of Joseph, and they study Egypt and the Egypt economy and the power of Egypt during that time, most historians agree that when Moses comes on the scene in Egypt, most historians agree that uh, it was uh, that Egypt was at the zenith of its power and uh, eco economic power and military might. Uh, and we know that by the time Moses leaves with the children of Israel, Egypt is going to be left as a barren land and Egypt will never recover from the devastation and the destruction that's going to happen. And so Egypt is primarily known by its wealth because, yes, of its military might, but also because of the livestock that Egypt possess. Uh, up to this point, if we were to just to read the Bible chronologically, we would first read the book of Genesis, then we would go to the book of Exodus, and all that we know so far in the book of Genesis 
coming into the book of Exodus is that wealth is directly connected to the livestock that you own. Whether it is cows or horses or uh, oxen or sheep, wealth is connected to the livestock. We know that Jacob is identified as being a very wealthy man, not because of money, not because of houses, but because of livestock. And so this, in Egypt, is the sign of the uh, economic power and wealth of Egypt. And so God is going to uh, hit the Egyptians where it hurts the most, their wealth. Now, oxen, if you think about those animals that are listed here, those different types of livestock, the oxen, think about it, were depended upon for the heavy labor of agriculture. Uh, they would often be used to plow the field. We think about the camels and the asses and the horses. These would be primarily used for transportation. Uh, horses would be used for short transportation within the land. The camels would be used to send Egyptian merchants throughout the entire world. And so this would affect the trade and the economy of Egypt. We also know that the cattle primarily provided milk. Now, we, we may think that milk is a big deal, but it was really a big deal. If you notice the Bible pattern so far, as God says, I'm going to bring you to a land that flows with what? Milk and honey. So milk was significant. You see, and by the way, if you've worked on a, on a cow farm, you, you, you milk the cows daily. It's an ongoing source of nutrition that is, uh, that is uh, not, uh, that, that is, uh, basically it's a sign of wealth, but also um, it is a sign of ongoing uh, provision that you are dependent on. So they would lose here oxen who did the plowing of the fields, they would lose the camels who would carry their merchandise to distant countries for trade. They would lose their horses who were really vital for military dominance. And also the sheep were also another source of wealth. And so what we could say here without going into all the details that this would have ruined the Egyptian economy when it was at the zenith of its power economically. You see, the Egyptians at that time, all the Egyptians, most of them owned some type of livestock. Pharaoh himself would be the primary holder who would have the most livestock out of all the Egyptians. If you remember, if we would go back to at the end of the book of Genesis when Joseph is Egypt and he brings his uh, father and all his brethren and gives them the land of Goshen. Remember, in Goshen was not just the children of Israel inhabiting that part of the land of Egypt, but Pharaoh also had his livestock in Goshen, and then the children of Israel themselves would end up taking care of Pharaoh's livestock. Now, the impact will first be on the material wealth of the Egyptians. And by the way, the Egyptians worshipped their wealth. They loved their wealth. They were known for their wealth. They pursued after wealth. The wealth, in the sense, was their God. Because think about it for just a moment. Every single God that they had and that they worshipped was connected somehow to some prosperity they received. Whether it was the Nile overflowing every year, 
Whether it was the, the, the power to plow the field with the oxen, everything to the Egyptians was connected here to their livestock. It's not going only to impact their material wealth, which they worship, but it is also going to impact their misplaced worship. You see, Egypt held many animals to be sacred. They worshipped animals. Uh, often different animals would represent to them a certain god. Let me give you, if you hold your place here in Exodus chapter 9, go back to Exodus chapter 8. You remember when Pharaoh says, well, I'll let you go, uh, but you, I'll let you offer sacrifice, but you have to offer it in the land of Egypt. You remember what Moses said in Exodus chapter 8? Notice verse 26. Or verse 25, And Pharaoh called for Moses and for Aaron and said, Go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not meet so to do, for we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, and will they not stone us? In other words, uh, Moses says, you don't want us to offer sacrifice in the land of Egypt because the animals that we will offer as sacrifice, the Egyptians hold them as gods and as sacred. And so Moses said, you really don't want us to do that. And so now we come to chapter 9 and the livestock of the Egyptians dies. You see, not only did the livestock provide a source of food and nutrition and of labor and of military might, but they, also, they were also deemed as sacred. Let me give you a few examples here. One of the, the bulls that they had, they had different type of bulls and cows in that time, but one of their bulls was considered the sacred animal of the god Ptah. The Egyptians would only hold, uh, they would only typically hold one sacred bull at a time. And so when the bull would die, they would replace that bull with another bull. And by the way, they even had burying places for those bulls. Uh, there was a discovery made in the mid-1800s uh, where uh, people were, archaeologists were digging around, and they found uh, basically a cave with a bunch of graves, and they found that in those graveyards was sacred cows. The cows that probably, or the bulls that they had considered as gods, and so when that bull would die, he would be replaced by another bull, and he, that bull would be worshipped. You see, the sacred bull was supposed to have been recognized by 28 distinctive marks that identified that bull as deity and indicated that he was the object of worship. If you uh, uh, study any amount of time the Egyptian drawings and hieroglyphics and all those things, you'll find that you, there's a lot of cows and bulls portrayed on those. Uh, Ptah was the god of creation. He was the maker of things. He was the god who was recognized as, the, as blessing the heifer with young. Now, you may say, well, what is a heifer? That's a name for a cow. Well, a heifer is a young female cow that has not born a calf yet. And so when uh, the cow would first born, you know, would first uh, produce a first calf, uh, then she would become a cow. But before then she was a heifer, and, and Ta was the god of that uh, fertility. Uh, Ap Apis was the god of fertility and, uh, and power. This god was also represented as a bull. Another deity whose worship would have been impacted was the god Hathor. This goddess 
was represented often by a cow. This goddess appeared as a woman with the head of a cow. Hathor was the goddess of love, of beauty, of music, of dancing, of fertility and pleasure. And we are represented, she was always represented as a woman with either horns of cows on her head or she would also be represented as a cow because she, would, she was believed to, give, uh, to be the one who gave substance to the people. So the cow, to the Egyptian mind and to the Egyptian heart, to which they ascribe worship, was the symbol of prosperity. So when Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, all the cows are going to die, it means that all the prosperity of the, uh, the Egyptians will be gone in a moment. You see, this is significant, I think, because as we think about that, we, we, we look at this account, and this fifth plague is, is really short, the account, just seven verses. But do you remember when the children of Israel later are in the wilderness and Moses is up on the mountain? Let, let's turn there. Let's go there for just a moment. Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32, lots happened, by the way, we're going to get there eventually, but let me mention here, in connection here to uh, the, 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 the death of the cows and the livestock, in Exodus chapter 32, Moses has been on the mountain, and the people saw that he delayed, well that is their interpretation of what Moses was doing, he was just kind of relaxing and sitting around waiting for them to do something bad, no, that's not what happened, but here, uh, Exodus 32, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mound, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us, what's the next word? Gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we would not what is become of him. Notice verse 2, And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, after he had made it a molten calf. Well, that's interesting. He made it a molten calf. And they said, These be the, notice, gods. You see, the calf and the cows not only represent one god, they represented the gods of the Egyptians. O Israel, it says, These be the, thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. What blasphemy and idolatry. If you go down later in this same chapter, this is really interesting, but notice in verse 19, I say interesting, sad, very sad. Notice here, Verse 19 of Exodus 32, And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands, and brake them beneath the mountain. And he took the calf which they had made, and burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and strawed it upon the water, and made the children of Israel drink of it. Now, we, we ask ourselves here, why would Moses do all that? Well, wait a minute. Remember plague 5? You just uh, um, shaped a golden calf and you've declared that this golden calf was the gods that brought you out of Egyptian bondage. Do you not remember what God did to the Egyptian gods? Do you remember, uh, not remember how God wiped all of them out? 
Verse 21, And Moses said unto Aaron, What did that this people unto thee that thou hast brought to, uh, to so great a sin upon thee? Now, in other words, what kind of pressure did the people exert on you that caused you to do this, Aaron? Tell me. Verse 22, And Aaron said, let not the anger of the Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. Now, we let, reread the first part of the chapter. But this is classic blame shifting. Right? Human nature. It's not my fault. It's his fault. Their fault. Verse 23. For they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the uh, land of Egypt, we would not what is become of him. Now it's interesting here. I think this is where they all go wrong. They said, well, man, uh, Moses, the man that brought us out of Egypt, he's gone. And I'm thinking, it's not Moses that brought you out. It's God. Moses was just the instrument, but it was God that did it. You see, any time that uh, hope is placed in man, you will find soon failure and devastation. And notice uh, verse 24, And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me, and I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's a good one. I, I, I threw the gold in there, and then, boom, the calf came. No, no, understand. Somebody fashioned that calf after the pattern of the Egyptian gods. That's what they knew. Somehow, some of the children of Israel had learned how to craft a golden calf. And here they brought this uh, with them, and now they're using those same skills. They're using this idolatry uh, now to uh, say, these are the gods that have brought us out of, the, of Egyptian bondage. So understand here that when we go back to plague number five, and God wipes out all the cows, understand that the cow is at the center of Egyptian worship and prosperity. And God just wipes it out. We go back to Exodus chapter 9. Notice verse 4, And the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt, and there shall nothing die of all that is the children of Israel. So there is a separation, now remember, that started in the last plague. So we're plague 5, plague 4. Uh, this is why we call this the second section, because the first three plagues affected everybody. The next three plagues, God is going to separate the children of Israel, the Hebrews, from the Egyptians. So the plagues are going to affect the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. So there's a separation between Israel's cattle and Egypt's cattle. Verse 5, the Bible says, And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. And the Lord did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died. But of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. Now, I want you to notice here maybe something that uh, might be a little subtle in verse 5 at the beginning. The Lord appointed a set time saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing. And it's interesting here that sometimes the plagues were immediate. Sometimes the plagues were done in front of Pharaoh. But there are a few times throughout those plagues where there is a delay. And so we, we ask ourselves here, what is the delay? Well, God here gave a delay to this plague I think no doubt to give an opportunity for Pharaoh to think. 
It's already plague number five. And thus far, Pharaoh has not used his time wisely. As a matter of fact, each time that there is a waiting period, Pharaoh finds himself in a worse condition than before. You see, when there is delay, God is waiting and patiently waiting. If Pharaoh had changed his heart, if he had said, you can let the people go, if he had used that time wisely. But I think often, uh, by the way, the first time it was Pharaoh that said that. You remember when, I think it was the frogs, and uh, when the frogs came, Pharaoh said, hey, can you take away the frogs? And Moses says, when? He says, tomorrow. And then when the frogs were taken out, uh, then he did not let the people go. The point is often people live in the tomorrow. Well, tomorrow I'll do this, and tomorrow I'll do that, and tomorrow I'll do that. If we live in the tomorrow, we'll never live at all. We must live in the present and change the heart today. If we wait for our heart to change tomorrow, it will most likely not happen. For the heart left to itself deceives. Now, we keep reading here, and uh, he says tomorrow, this is going to happen tomorrow at the appointed set time. The Lord shall do this thing in the land. And the Lord did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died. But of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. Now, let me just establish here. Some people say, well, there's a... Con Notice here, all the cattle died, and some people say, so all the animals died, but yet when the children of Israel come out of Egypt... They're pursuing the children of Israel on horses. I thought all the animals died. So see, there's a contradiction in the Bible. Well, let me point out a few things. Go back to verse 3 of chapter 9. Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon the ca thy cattle. Notice, important words, which is in the field. Upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, and upon the sheep, there shall be a very grievous moraine. Now, I would like to point out here that the cattle that is going to be affected is only the cattle in the field. Uh, they would have two, cla two classifications of cattle. There would be cattle who would be in the field and cattle who would be in the stalls or st in so under some form of structure. So understand what is going on here. The majority of Egyptian wealth would be contained in the field. So when you read here, the Bible says that all the cattle in Egyptian died. Uh, and by the way, here there is a distinction because he says the cattle in the field... Notice, upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, upon the sheep, there shall be a very grievous moraine. But as we read later, in verse 6, And the Lord did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died. So notice here, there's a distinction in verse 3 between the cattle and the horses and the oxen and the asses and the camels. But here the Bible says that all the cattle died. Which cattle? The cattle that was in the field. Doesn't say all the horses died. Doesn't say all the oxen died. Now, a great portion of them died. But the point I'm making, sometimes people like to, well, there's, there's a contradiction here in the Bible. People like to do that. But often they do that without even studying the Word. All the cattle in the field died. A significant portion of horses and camels and oxen died. But there still remain some. We continue here and notice in... At the end of verse 6, But the cattle of the children of Israel died, notice, not one. 
Now, that was predicted. Remember when Moses came to Pharaoh, he told Pharaoh, he says, uh, just so you know, the Egyptian cattle is going to be affected, but uh, the Israelite cattle is not going to be affected. Okay. The Bible says here, not one died. And so notice verse 7, And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead. So Pharaoh, being the king he was, says, well, we're going to find that one. We're going to find some cattle. There's got to be. Now, when you read the word moraine, it, it's some form of disease. We don't know exactly what it is. But it's obviously some communicable disease that goes from one animal to the next, from one livestock to the next, and wipes out entire flocks. But yet, the cattle of the Israelites remain untouched. And Pharaoh wanted to check to see if what God said would really happen. And it did. But then we read the most perplexing statement after Pharaoh sent and behold there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead and, and by the way just so we understand here the cattle what we read in, at the end of the book of Genesis is that the Israelites kept their own cattle but they also kept the cattle of the Egyptians remember the Egyptians they despised the shepherd they didn't like that job they didn't do that job they assigned that job to the children of Israel so what would happen is you had the flocks of the Egyptians, the flocks of the Hebrews. Much like you find, you remember when with Laban and Jacob, Laban had his cattle, Jacob had his cattle, and they would mark both cattle. These are the cattle of Laban, these are the cattle of the Egyptians. So the way you can tell them apart is they were branded, they were marked, and so they were all in the same field. They were all branded. Here are the cattle, and so you could walk, through a bunch of cattle, and you can say, okay, here's an Egyptian cattle, and here's a Hebrew cattle, and here's an Egyptian cattle, here's a Hebrew cattle. And so Pharaoh sent his little minions throughout the cattle pasture, and they said, well, we got to find one dead Hebrew cattle. And they couldn't find one. The disease communicated to all the Egyptians' cattle, but not to the cattle of the Israelites. God is showing Pharaoh that he is indeed God. And that there is nothing that Pharaoh can do to stop him. And so we read at the end of verse 7, And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. <laughs> Wait a minute. He saw that what God said he would do, he did. And yet he got harder and harder. Well, that's much like the nature of man. Even when things are evident, even when God we know is trying to get a hold of us, we, we still seem to harden our hearts. Pharaoh is not getting his way. Remember, he thinks himself to be God, and he's not getting his way. But I think there's something here that perhaps not stated here in our passage in this faith, fifth plague, but something that is evident that really differentiates the children of Israel from the Egyptians. And that is their perspective on livestock. Now, remember to the Egyptian, the livestock means everything. As a matter of fact, they worshipped the livestock, 
much of it. They depicted some of their gods to look like their cows and their horses and their oxen. And so they, they worshipped and they bowed before their scouts. But the children of Israel are going to use then God is going to spare their livestock also for a purpose that is to come. And that purpose is what? That all of them are going to offer a sacrifice, a spotless lamb, and they're going to sprinkle the blood on the doorpost. Now, that is a picture of Jesus Christ. And when the death angel is going to come later, he is going to pass over all the houses where the blood has been sprinkled on the doorpost. So understand, the Egyptians are worshiping beasts, but the Israelites, their livestock, they see them quite differently. It is going to be in this book of Exodus that the livestock of Israel is going to be preserved and used to offer sacrifice unto the Lord. Now we understand that the children of Israel were not to worship their livestock. As a matter of fact, when they were offering sacrifices, it was not them worshiping the sacrifice. It was them to picture. It was there as a picture of what would be of the object of their worship. And who is the object of their worship? It's the Lord, Jehovah. Jehovah means God is salvation. The sacrifice was a picture of the fact that one day Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would come. And by the way, this did not just start here in the book of Exodus. It began in the book of Genesis. Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned against God and God pronounced the curse upon man? When He subjected the creation to a curse, He he subjected the creation to a curse in hope. You remember Adam and Eve had attempted to um, sow themselves leaves upon themselves to uh, cover themselves before, because they were ashamed. But then God then uh, gave them animal skin so beasts had to be slain in order to cover them. And so the idea of a, an animal sacrifice is something that we see uh, from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and it's going to persist here again and again. And so we understand that the object of our worship is not uh, the, the sacrifice of the lamb or the, the Hebrews the sacrifice of the lamb. They don't worship the lamb, they don't worship the cow, they don't worship the oxen, but they worship the God of the oxen. And that sacrifice is communicating something that is to be important to the Hebrews. What is that? Well, that innocent blood needs to be shed for the guilty. But what is that? Well, all men we know are under sin. All men are under the condemnation. That includes, by the way, the children of Israel. They would be reminded as they would offer those sacrifice, I am a sinner, I am guilty, I am guilty before God, and I deserve the wrath and the judgment of God, but I'm going to offer this sacrifice as a picture of the one who is to come, who is going to be my sacrifice. Well, and that sacrifice, by the way, is Jesus Christ. That's why when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, John the Baptist, who were the who was the precursor or the announcer of Jesus Christ, says, there's coming somebody after me whose shoe latchet I'm not worthy to unloose. And, um, uh, and, when, and finally Jesus comes on the scene. Remember what John the Baptist, he sees Jesus Christ who's coming to be baptized of him. And remember what he said, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. The Lamb. The Lamb of God, which what? Which taketh away the sin of the world. You see, all that happened in the Old Testament is is a foreshadow of what is to come. And so they don't worship the beast. But when they think of the beast, they think of the Messiah who is to come, who will be their sacrifice, and who will die for their sins. And so there's something quite different in contrast from the Egyptians who worship 
the creature more than the creator. You see, the Old Testament is not really about the children of Israel and all their sacrifices. It's about the children of Israel and what they communicate about Christ, who is to come. We're going to find in this very book of Exodus all the different type of livestock that is going to be used by the Hebrews to speak of Christ. Everything in the tabernacle that's going to be instituted in this book is going to speak of Christ. All the ceremonies that they're going to do, from the Paschal Lamb uh, to the blood carried into the holy place and then into the holy place is all going to speak of Jesus Christ. The Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on the top and the law inside and the blood that sprinkled the top all speaks of Jesus Christ. And so all that we find here in Exodus is a, a, a stark contrast because then here God would take away all the wealth of the Egyptians but at the very same time take away their worship. The object of their worship. Remember, the only reason that they worshipped the calf and the gods was because they thought that those brought them wealth. Well, as soon as the wealth disappeared, who is left to worship? Nobody. The gods have been defeated at the same time that wealth has gone. I think it's interesting because we are in America, and I think we could say the most prosperous nation in the world, wealth-wise per capita. Look at the numbers. But I think to a great extent for America, wealth has become the god of Americans. And that is, by the way, idolatry. Where we pursue after wealth, we pursue after witches, that's what we live for, and that's, if that is what we live for, then that is a God unto us. And we know we worship it, because the moment it's all taken away, then we fall into a complete broken state, as the Egyptians would find themselves. You see, a true God is a God that you can still worship when you have nothing. That is a true God. Not the gods of the Egyptians. So we continue here in our passage. We see what those things not only teach us about the Egyptians, about the Israelites, but also about God. God is making an open display of the emptiness of false religion. False worship. And the false object of worship. God takes it all away. When it's all said and done, we're, going to, we're continuing here. When it's all said and done, the Egyptians will have nothing. And we're going to get there. What devastation. And yet, man's heart persisting, disobeying God. So what do we learn from that? Well, may our hearts not be hardened toward the God of heaven, the one true and living God. May we submit ourselves and not harden ourselves. And may we make sure that the object of our worship is Him and not anything else that we may use as a substitute to find peace and comfort in.